Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. John Norton is one of those very special Canadians most Canadians have never heard about. He was an immigrant, he was a Scot, he was a Mohawk, he's a wanderer, a man in search of his identity. He will be familiar to members of the Champlain Society, however. In 1970, the Champlain Society published the Journal of Major John Norton, 1816, edited by Carl Klink and James Talman. In 2011, to honor the memory of the War of 1812, we brought out this book again, this time with a short introduction by my good friend and colleague here at Ryerson, Carl Bent. Now Dr. Ben has been has published a Mohawk memoir from the War of 1812. It is published by the University of Toronto Press, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the studio. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is terrific. You're the witness to yesterday in this episode. Tell me what happened on October 13th, 1812. Well, that was the Battle of Queenston Heights, an absolutely critical battle in the War of 1812. And you have to imagine um, the night of... October 13th, or about 2 in the morning, American troops started crossing the Niagara River from um, Lewiston to Queenston, and they came over in strength. The British had roughly two companies of regulars to oppose them. They had about 1,500 men along the entire border versus about 6,000 across on the U.S. side. And the troops um, at Queenston weren't strong enough numerically to stop the Americans from landing. Americans landed. They uh, acquired control of the heights. They moved down into the village of Queenston on the north side. They pushed the British out of it, and things didn't look good. The big problem for the British commander, Isaac Brock, was was that the real attack, or was that just a feint to draw troops away with Niagara being the main target at Fort George at Niagara-on-the-Lake? Well, they decided that um, Queenston was the main attack. Brock tried to um, push the Americans out. He didn't have enough men. He was killed early in the action. And the Americans began to establish a, a secure position on top of the heights. At this point, the British commander who took over, uh, Major General Roger Schaaf, ordered troops from the south, Chippewa, Fort Erie, etc., to move on Queenston Heights and move troops from the north, Fort George, etc., down towards the heights. And part of that force consisted of um, a Six Nations War party from uh, Grand River, on the north shore of Lake Erie, led by John Norton, the Mohawk chief. Um, as they approached the heights, they moved inland, uh, away from the river, to ascend the heights out of sight of the Americans. And then they attacked the Americans. And it was an amazing attack because there were about 1,300 American soldiers on top of the heights, and Norton had about 80 warriors. However, <laughs> You would say completely outnumbered. Completely. Um, however... Um, the Americans didn't expect an attack from that direction. It upset their equilibrium. It pushed them closer to the edge of the heights because they wanted to create some distance between the forest where Norton's people were and their troops. And then for hours, these 80 men kept the Americans pinned down on the top, top of the heights in an insecure position. They weakened them. They used up their ammunition. They inflicted casualties so that when the rest of the British and Canadian forces were assembled on the heights ready to advance against the Americans, the Americans were in no position to resist, and we get a really quite complete victory uh, for the British side. Um, give you an idea of the casualties, the British-Canadian Indigenous forces had about 100 killed and wounded, a few missing. The Americans had about 500 killed and wounded, uh, 950 taken prisoner, and then a week afterwards, another thousand or so American soldiers deserted the army in, 
in uh, desperation for the for the defeat. This was a turning point in John Norton's life, wasn't it? This was his big battle, um, a hugely important event for him. When the war broke out, the six nations of the Grand River were divided as to how they should respond to the war. Some were pro-British and militant. Some were pro-British but very nervous because they, like everybody else, they thought the odds against Great Britain were terrible. Mm-hmm. Some were neutralist. Um, they had seen Britain negotiate the end of the American Revolution that left the Six Nations in um, an isolated position in New York. Um, they saw the British not provide enough support for Native people in the Ohio country in the 1790s, so they thought neutrality made sense. And some people, very small minority, thought actually allying with the Americans would make sense. Well, Norton advocated for a British alliance. He led a small number of warriors to Detroit. But with the fall of Detroit, the fall of Mackinac, the fall of Fort Dearborn, it looked like the British had some real fight in them, and most of the Six Nations warriors came into the war on the, as British allies. And Queenston Heights was where Norton played a critical role in the, in the defeat of the Americans and gained considerable prestige as a result. Okay, let's, under, let's, let's, let's work on John Norton. I think to understand John Norton, you have to start with his father. That's right. It's, his story is unusual. You know, we always have this idea that if somebody's a Mohawk, they're a Mohawk, they were born a Mohawk. But it can't be more complex than that. So his dad was a, a Cherokee living down in, in South Carolina. He was probably an older child or younger teenager in 1760 during the Anglo-Cherokee War, which nobody ever knows about. Um, and British troops uh, attacked the village in which he was um, living. Many of the people fled, but some, for some reason he was hiding in his home. The British army burnt the village. Norton was um, injured. The, the father was injured in the, in the fire. And uh, the soldiers captured a lot of women and children. They took them away. Now, the women and children were returned to the Cherokee world shortly afterwards, but not the father, and, and probably because he was too badly injured to go home. So he ended up staying with the soldiers in the 1st Regiment of Foot, the Royal Scots. He went off and was president of the Siege of Havana in 1762 with the regiment. Um, he joined the regiment, I don't know if it was before or after the siege, uh, went to England. Um, was, he just followed the Redcoats back home. That's right, he joined the army, he was in the army. He shows up in 1769 as a drummer in the 1st Foot at Berwick in northern England, and then he left the army. We don't know if it was in 1769 or 70, but he went to Scotland and he took up with a woman called Christian Anderson. Um, we don't know if he married her or they just lived together, um, but we know their home group of Andersons in the first foot, so I think there was a family connection. And very soon afterwards, in December 1770, they produced John Norton, who would become the Mohawk chief later on. And so, 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 so he's a he's a Scot. <laughs> well, he's he's half Scottish, he's half Cherokee. Yes. But the weird thing is, of course, um, most people of those kinds of uh, relationships are born in North America, and it's the father who's European and the mums who's First Nations. Uh, Norton's a double reverse. He's born in Scotland, and his dad is the indigenous person. And this has caused a lot of confusion in his time and since as to his identity. But it, it really is key to understanding who he is, isn't it? It is, very much so. He decides to come back to his... Well, I mean, he comes back. He comes to Canada in 1785. We're talking about John Norton now. He comes right. to Canada in 1785. What prompts him to join the Six Nations? Um, it's pretty certain that his father wanted to come back to the Cherokees. And he taught Norton some of the Cherokee language and obviously the culture and stuff. So Cher Norton grew up in Scotland, 
the Scottish education and Cherokee education all at once. And the father wanted to come home. So what he did, which was pretty typical at the time of people who wanted to come to North America but had no means of doing so, is he joined a regiment destined for North America. And both men joined the, the 65th Regiment. And they were sent out to North America. They were sent to um, Fort Niagara in Youngstown, New York. And young John Norton deserted and went into the Haudenosaunee world or the Iroquois world in western New York. And then the father was reposted to the area south of Montreal. And then he deserted and went back to the Cherokees. Fascinating. Yeah. It's a choice that has to be made, isn't it? Yes. Um, he settles with the Six Nations? Um, not right away. What he did, well, first he lived with probably the Cayugas in western New York, and then he got a job with the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel at Tyndanaga, the Mohawk res res Reserve, or tract um, near Belleville, Ontario, where he was a school teacher. He hated being a school teacher, so he decided to go west to the Ohio country to join the um, um, various people there who were resisting American expansion into the Ohio country. But on the way, he stopped at Six Nations, um, made a bit of an impression, went to the Ohio country, fought in the war there. He was at the Battle of the Wabash in 1791, for example. Um, he seems to have been on small-scale operations. He worked as a trader. Um, and then when that war ended, uh, Joseph Brandt, the very famous Mohawk leader at Six Nations, saw him as a potentially positive person to have um, in the community. He multilingual. He learned languages really well. He was comfortable in both societies. He could keep a secret. He was um, uh, committed to ind indigenous independence. And at the time, Brant was looking for assistance. And so he arranged for um, Norton to get a job in the Indian department as a translator, moved to Niagara. Uh, Norton only stayed there a few years. Then he went to Grand River, who was adopted by the Mohawks, and he was invited to become a, a chief. Let's go back then to the War of 1812. Um, you said that at the outset, the the Six Nations were really at odds as to how they should position themselves, right. divided in three ways, um, neutral, pro-British, pro and hedging their bets, I guess, with the fear that they would be absorbed by the Americans, so not really sure what side uh, they should take. How does the war of 1812 that goes on until 1815. Uh, how does this war position um, the, the the Six Nations? Do they evolve in their positions, or will that stay? Will that confusion stay? Um, well, they were divided throughout the war. What we see is that it seems like most of them were more, quite hostile to the Americans. The whole history of American expansion offended them. Norton talked about uh, the Americans as being sort of the natural enemies of the Aboriginal race. Those are his words. Um, and when things looked fairly positive for a successful defense of Canada, we see significant numbers of Six Nations men coming out um, to participate in the defense of the colony. But they did shift as the war shifted. So after the fall of Fort George in May 1813, and the British retreated to Burlington Heights, which is in Hamilton, and the Americans won a number of other battles on on the Great Lakes at that time, some Six Nations people thought they might have to switch alliances, join the Americans to try and buy peace with them. Now, this might not sound very good, but they had a whole history of um, doleful outcomes from participating in alliances with white people over 200 years. Um, the situation was desperate. The, the Six Nation community had formed as, as out of refugees from the American Revolution. 
they took a long time to rebuild the societies afterwards. So they're really concerned about their future. Um, now, fortunately, um, Stony Creek was a British victory. The Americans fell back on the Niagara River, and we see the Six Nations coming back into the war and being very significant in keeping the Americans bottled up in Fort George until the campaigning season ended. They also were big players in 1814 until the Battle of Chippewa. At Chippewa, what we see are uh, American resident Haudenosaunee and Canadian resident Haudenosaunee killing each other in fairly substantial numbers. And afterwards, they had a council, and the two groups decided to withdraw from the war. Not Norton, though. Um, he believed in the Anglo-Haudenosaunee alliance, and he fought right on to the end of the war at the head of a fairly small war party in the last months of the conflict. So Queenston Heights is not his last battle? No. In fact, I can't think of anybody else in the War of 1812 who saw more action than him. Um, anybody famous, and even when you think about which regiments were in the battles, which indigenous groups were in the fighting, there's just nobody who seems to have seen more action than he did. He's, the MVP, is he? <laughs> well, you know, he was at Queenston Heights, he was at Fort George, uh, the Battle of, the Siege of, he's at Detroit, uh, he was at uh, Lundy's Lane, Chippewa. He's Siege, everywhere. He's everywhere. So he has a good reason to write memoirs. Very much so. Where does he write his memoirs? Well, he started um, his writing, writing his memoirs in Canada. In fact, he had been working on a book since probably at least about 1805. Um, but he finished them on a visit to England in 1815-16. And the idea was that they would be published. Um, and um, an Anglican priest was going to edit them for him. But the clergyman and all Norton's other British friends thought the book needed a lot more work before it could go into copy editing. Um, and it didn't happen. So the book manuscript sat at Olnick Castle in, in Northern England in the Duke of Northumberland's collection, pretty much forgotten um, through the 19th century and through the 20th century. It, it appears in a list of British manuscripts in the Victorian period. It was microfilmed during for the Second World War, so it content wouldn't be lost if... Um, when you say manuscript, it was still like a manuscript? Or it was a manuscript. It was actually typeset. Uh, it wasn't typeset. It was a uh, manuscript, and it's actually not in his handwriting. Uh, he produced his manuscript, and somebody wrote out a fair copy, mm. and that's what we have. And in at Western University, they have part of an earlier draft, a small part. So we have this fair copy that somebody wrote out for him, which was meant to go to the publisher. And the way it's laid out, it's laid out for typesetting. Um, it's a peculiar way of, of... But I want to picture John Norton writing this. You say he started in Canada, but he moves back to England? He only visited for two years. Uh, okay. He, actually, he made two trips to England, one in 1804-5 and one in 1815-16. And that's when he writes his memoirs? Um, well, that's when he finished the finished memoirs. Finished them. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, he'd been and he's writing... Is he, do we know where he's writing it? Uh, well, um, in Canada, he would be writing his home on Grand River. Um, and... Um, he, in England, uh, he traveled all over the place. Um, he visited all sorts of people, like the Duke of Northumberland, and he was at uh, Sion House in London, the Duke's uh, London home. Um, he stayed with a number of clergymen um, who were interested in him. Um, so he traveled around the countries. And Write, he, writing in nice places. I'm trying to picture. He's that's writing, right, writing in nice places. Writing in nice places, and he leaves the manuscript somewhere. That's and, right. And as you say, in various states of, of, of pre-publishing, but somebody sort of puts it on the shelf, and it's forgotten. That's right. What brought it back? Well, interestingly, uh, Carl Klink and uh, James Talman out at Western in the 
became aware of it. Um, I think they may have seen it in the British Manuscripts Commission, and they had assumed that there would be Canadian-centered text in Britain that people had forgotten. So they tweaked into its existence, and in the 1960s, they uh, began working on the Champlain Society edition of the book, um, which they brought out in 1970. What makes this memoir so important? Why are you spending time on this? Well, first of all, just the part on the War of 1812, which is what I put in my book, which is about a third of the memoir, it's just about the best memoir from the war by anybody, American, British, Canadian, Indigenous. It is really the, a very good memoir. Um, it's also more detailed than most. But the manuscript as a whole is extremely important text. Here we have a thousand-page manuscript by an Indigenous author at the beginning of the 19th century. Now, how rare is that? Um, it's extremely rare. It's far and away the most extensive memoir produced by a First Nations person in Eastern North America at this time. And then the content is is amazing. Um, Historically accurate, detailed in its, in very, its very evidence? Detailed. Is, that, and, is that what it is? And one of the great things about Norton is he didn't like to tell lies. Um, and I've, I've looked for this very carefully because, of course, when you read a historical manuscript, one of the first questions you ask yourself is, why is this person lying to me? <laughs> uh, and uh, what I found and what Clink and Tallman found is that he just didn't tell lies. What I found is if he didn't like something, he just didn't talk about it. Right. Um, so he's, he's reliable. And whenever I can test what he writes against any other source, it's always reliable. But there's several parts to the manuscript. One is um, a detailed account of a journey he made from the Grand River down to the Cherokees in 1809-10. It's full of ethnographic detail. It's full of detail about what white society was like as he would travel down the Ohio, etc., on his way there. Then there's an extremely detailed history of the Six Nations. Now think about this. A Six Nations author, beginning of the 19th century, writing the history of the Six Nations. This is a very, very important text. And it's also important at another level because I think uh, the text of the history of the Six Nations was started by Joseph Brandt. So it's either Brandt's text integrated into Norton's text or it's based on Brandt's text. Um, and when you read it, it's very interesting because there's um, oral tradition, there's memory, there's use of European sources, but a very detailed history of the Six Nations as they understood it 200 years ago. That's important, and a lot on the culture. And then he talks about the Ohio War, and then, of course, we have his own adventures in the War of 1812. So we have access to the indigenous world to a degree that we wouldn't have in any other way if that manuscript had not survived. Does he give you a glimpse of how he saw the future of indigenous people in Upper Canada or in North America? Yeah, not so much in the journal, but one of the things about Norton is, is there are a lot of letters to and from him or, and texts about him and people writing about what he said to them and that sort of thing. So we have a lot of Norton thought in existence. He wanted to modernize indigenous economies. Um, he wanted to modernize them for two reasons. One is he was concerned about the prosperity and comfort of people, but he also recognized that white societies use native poverty as a way of exploiting and pushing them around and taking their independence away. So he wanted them to have enough prosperity that they could resist that, they um, could be independent. They could be independent. Mm. And he also had this vision that maybe all the indigenous people of Upper Canada should move together into a big tract sort of east of um, Georgian Bay, Lake Huron, where they would settle in enough quantity and, and in enough coherence of a society of basically modernized farmers that they could resist 
unwanted uh, intrusions from the white world so that they could evolve into the future on their own time and in their own terms doing what they wanted. Um, of course, that didn't happen, um, but that was his vision coming out of the War of 1812. And it's a vision that's crafted, obviously, by a sincere intimacy with the white world. That's right. Um, and his his letters are full of criticisms of the way Euro-Americans exploited Native people. Uh, when, when did um, Norton die? 1827. Uh, and did he die here in Canada? No, he died down in um, uh, the Arkansas Territory. Uh in 1823, he fought a kind of a rough sort of duel over his wife's honor. Um, and then he um, surrendered himself to the white authorities. He was tried in Niagara for manslaughter. Um, There's a lot of sympathy for him. So he was fined 25 pounds, and that was his punishment. And then he went off to the south uh, to visit the Cherokees who were living in the Arkansas Territory at the time. And then he traveled around. So his father's people. Yeah, his father's people. It was the second time he went down to see them. And um, he, we don't know a lot about what he did down there, but we know, for example, he went into Mexican territory, and the Shawnees asked him to act as a speaker for them as they tried to negotiate with the Mexicans for a home outside of the United States to get away from American oppression. Um, and we know he intended to come back to Canada, but he died in 1827. Out of illness? Probably out of sure. illness. We have one little record from the missionary saying John Norton died last year. That would imply that nothing there was nothing remarkable about his death. Let's talk about you and your interests in this war. You've written two books, The Iroquois and the War of 1812, that was published in 1998. You've also published The War of 1812, published in 2002. This Norton volume is not the first time you edit and present Indigenous memoirs. You've done Mohawks on the Nile, Natives Among the Canadian Voyagers in Egypt, 1884-85, and Native Memoirs from the War of 1812, Black Hawk and William Appis. This was came out in, in 2014. How does Norton compare with Black Hawk and William Appis, for example? His memoir is far more extensive. And uh, it's in some ways more accessible than Black Hawk's. Black Hawk is quite an important figure, too, in the sock world of the Upper Mississippi. William Appis is um, less important. He um, grew up in Connecticut in, in uh, society— was more acculturated than um, societies for the West, and he ended up serving in the U.S. artillery in the War of 1812 as, as, a, as a gunner. Um, now, his book is full of rage against the way Native people have been treated by white people, but his military exploits are uh, pretty minor in comparison. Blackhawk's a fascinating person, uh, but his real significance lies in his post-war uh, life um, in terms of his resistance to the Americans in the 1830s. But getting back to the War of 1812, what fascinates you so much about this period? It sort of captured my imagination early on. Um, I kind of, I grew up in my grandparents' house, and they're born in the 19th century, and they're your standard issue old Ontario wasps. And the house was sort of full of history and stories. And um, as a goofy little kid around 1960, I watched all those black and white mm. uh, frontier movies, which in retrospect I realized were just grimly horrible. Um <laughs> And when I started working in the museum world, I started working at at Fort York, and so I was very interested from an early age. Um, and I realized that, you know, I needed to understand indigenous history better than I did, and so I started researching it. It captured my imagination. It ran away with it, so I ended up writing four of my books. In, and in it's been with area. you. It's been with you all this time. Ever since, yeah. How did you experience the bicentennial of the War of 1812? 
Well, I was relieved that they actually was celebrated. Yes. Um, well, it was mentioned, let's say. <laughs> no, though there was a fair amount. Of, apparently, the prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, liked the War of 1812, so there was a fair amount of emphasis on it. Whereas, um, so the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812 got celebrated, although given the government's atti- attitudes, the 50th anniversary of Medicare got ignored. Mm. Um, and it speaks to the politicization of uh, commemoration. But I was glad the War of 1812 was commemorated. It was often commemorated quite clumsily, um, but... Um, what grade would you give it as a professor? Oh, kind of a B minus. A B minus. Do you think we could have done more? We could have done more in with more intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was just fairly ham-fisted. Uh, a really good example of that, if you go to um, uh, Ottawa to the Parliament Hill site, there's a War of 1812 a statue of uh, basically a Native person, a sailor, a Canadian, a British soldier all fighting together, and it's... It's just goofy. Mm. We could have done better. We have a lot more to learn about that, about commemoration, don't we? That's true. And, and doing it in a way that uh, commemorates some of the sophistication and the complexities of the past to the general public. But they commemorated it. And of course, Parks Canada runs a lot of our 1812 sites, so that's a good thing. Well, it's with us. It's certainly with us in southern Ontario that's and right. other parts of, of eastern Canada. But certainly in Ontario, it's, uh, it's an event that shaped our, our, our land and shaped our history and shaped our mentalities in many ways. Well, if you think about it, if the defense of Canada in the War of 82 had not been successful, we'd be Americans. Yeah. Uh, so That we, can't be forgotten. We owe a lot of thanks to the people of 1812 to 14 who fought. And to John Norton for writing it all down. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Carl Ben, for being with me. Well, this was a pleasure. That was Carl Ben, author and editor of A Mohawk Memoir from the War of 1812. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 6, 2020, and it was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.